Hey, what's up? This is Shegs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this is part eight of a blog series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And today's blog post is titled, When God Puts the Ball in Your Court. There's a heartbreaking occasion, somewhat of an embarrassing story in my life, where I once acted like the man in the modern day parable of the flood. This is not a biblical parable. This is just something that somebody came up with a while back. Anyway, the story of this parable goes that a man was once trapped in his house during the flood. And so this guy starts praying to God for help. And in his prayer, he sees a vision of God's hand reaching down from heaven and lifting him to safety. And so based on his vision, he, he waited. And as the flood waters began to rise, his neighbors actually pulled up in a pickup truck and urged him to leave with them, offering him a ride to safety. Well, the man in this parable passes on your offer, explaining that I'm okay, thanks. God is going to come rescue me. Well, the waters continue to rise, and he was eventually forced to climb on his roof. Well, as he's climbing on his roof, a boat pulls up next to him with some people on it who throw a rope at, to him and offer him their assistance. Well, once again, the man refuses their help, explaining, thanks, but no thanks. I got a promise I'm holding on to you and God will be here shortly. Well, the waters rose precariously to the point that the house actually started to tilt on its foundation. And just then, a helicopter flies by and a voice from a loudspeaker offers to lower a ladder to help the guy get off the roof. Well, still the man waved them off, insisting, shouting that God would soon be there to save them. And after much urging, the helicopter ended up leaving. Well, eventually a nearby dam broke and the flood water just poured all over the house, swept the house away, and unfortunately ended up drowning the man. Well, the guy gets to heaven and when he gets to heaven, he marches to God and he demands, Lord, why did you not save me? I believed you with all my heart. Why did you let me drown? And God looks at him and responds and says, I, I sent you neighbors in a pickup truck to help you. I sent you a boat and a helicopter and you refused them all. What else could I possibly have done for you? Now, <laughs> I, I choose to share that story instead of what actually happened to me, because if I'm being honest, the real thing in my life was just too embarrassing to recount here. But the lesson of that parable still holds true. And the lesson is this that God will not do for us what he has equipped us to do for ourselves. And so I titled this blog post, When God Puts the Ball in Your Court. And putting the ball in your court means that God encourages us to join him in his work where he supernaturally empowers our human efforts so that we can accomplish exponentially more. But at the heart of it is this, that you and I have to get up. We must get up and get moving. And it's in such a scenario that we now find Esther and Mordecai in Esther chapter 8, where we are looking at today. Now, from a human perspective, up until this point, and really moving on, God has outwardly done his part by foiling Haman's plot and removing him from the picture, as we saw in the previous chapters. And so now it's really left to Esther and Mordecai to fully possess the promise that God has placed in front of them. So God has actually put their, the ball in their court in chapter 8, hence it's their move. Now, Esther 8 opens up with the king seemingly trying to appease his wife, the queen. For He's trying to appease his wife because he was frankly a part of the plot to annihilate and destroy her people, the Jews. Now, though the plot originated in Haman's mind and was put in motion by Haman, remember, it was the king who thoughtlessly signed off 
on the edict. So it could be argued that the king is just as guilty as Haman was. But remember, Xerxes is king. No one is going to dare lift an accusatory eyebrow against him, right? No one except maybe his wife. Now, I don't suppose Esther actually accused the king in chapter 8, verse 1 of any kind of wrongdoing. But listen, I'm a married man, and I know that sometimes when my wife says, I'm fine, nothing is wrong, it actually means everything is not fine, and everything is my fault, right? And it's with this perspective that we read the opening verses of chapter 8, um, where the king is not only offering Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, but man, he's actually appointed Mordecai as second in command of the entire Nation. I mean, it's a grand gesture that's really designed to placate his, to, to, to sort of, I hate to use this term, to, to keep his mouth, to keep his wife quiet and have her not, you know, go nuts on him. Because in his mind, Queen Esther is walking away a winner, right? She's acquired great wealth by inheriting Haman's property. Her cousin Mordecai just received an impressive promotion. And the best news of all, Haman is dead, right? So, so in the king's mind, this offer should make Esther and Mordecai happy. Everyone should go home happy, right? Well, wrong. And, and this actually brings us to the first lesson about that moment when God places the ball in your court. And it's this. Do not settle for something good if the possibility of great is still on the table. You see, the scenario that Esther is facing, everything is not A-OK. -okay. Like the threat of, yes, Haman is gone. Yes, Esther has inherited wealth. Yes, Mordecai has been promoted. But the threat of the Jews being annihilated and destroyed still hangs over the nation like dark, stormy clouds. Like though God has put the ball in Esther's court by exposing Haman's falsehood and by granting Esther favor, the edict to exterminate all the Jews had already been passed. So death was still in motion. So then Esther's strategy all along has actually been twofold, each as risky as the next. First, she had to convince the king that his most trusted friend Haman was the enemy. So that's done. God helped her. We're good. But now Esther has to go back and convince the king to revoke what we will discover shortly is an actually is actually an irrevocable law. So make no mistake about it. Approaching the king to make her request this second time around in chapter 8 was just as dangerous as the first time she went before him in chapter 4 verse 11 where she explains that no one can just walk in the presence of the king otherwise they'd be they'd be executed, right? That's just Persian law. Now, back to chapter 8. We, we actually don't know because everything that happened in chapter 7 seemed to happen on the same day the events of chapter 8 are happening. But we, we don't know what the king's movement in the palace was on that day in chapter 8. But there's reason to believe that Esther essentially had to go through the same royal protocol that she went through in, in earlier chapters to approach the king. Verse 6 tells us that when she eventually did approach him, verse 6 of chapter 8, that the king extended the gold scepter to her. In other words, he gave her a pass, which means then that the option of being put to death was always a very real possibility if the king had still been in his angry mode like he was earlier when he ordered the execution of Haman. The point I'm trying to draw out of here is this, that Esther didn't just settle for one out of two. Right? She had two things she needed the king to do. She, she didn't just settle for one of them and let the other go. She didn't settle for a small win. Her faith in God had been forged in prayer, and she had already begun to see his silent handprint in palace events. So, acting on faith that there were still promises of God to be possessed, she 
audaciously pressed past just good results for something greater by appealing the king that by appealing to the king to essentially turn the law around it's what she's asking in verse five verse three and verse five to six when it says esther again pleaded with the king falling at his feet and weeping she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of haman the agagite which he had devised against the jews verse five esther says if it pleases the king she said and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do and if he is pleased with me let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Right. So Esther is pressing in beyond just good results to something greater. You know, the principle in this first lesson um, about good to great um, came to life in my first few years of seminary, it became very vivid for me during that period. Um, at that time, I was getting restless with something that I was involved in, and I was eager to jump into a new opportunity that somebody had put in front of me. Well, one of my mentors and my close friends who was familiar with my gifting and my calling and my story, and who also had a keen sense of what God was doing in my life, he challenged me right as I was about to join on that new endeavor. He says, he said to me, he said, Cheggs, be careful that in your impulsiveness, you're not settling for something good enough when God very well may have something great in store for you. Now that counsel stuck with me and he gave me a real moment of pause because I knew and he knew that I was simply rushing into this next thing because I was getting weary on waiting on God's timing, not because I felt this compelling Holy Spirit inspired calling. Well, it's almost 10 years later since his counsel, and man, I got to tell you, I am so deeply grateful that I humbled myself enough to heed his words. And without going into all the details, I'll just tell you this. This guy, my counselor was, uh, my count, my friend who counseled me, he was 110% right that God did indeed have something greater in store for me. And as it turns out, I was really just trying to settle for something good. And so I pose that question to you today. What about you? Like what areas of your life might you be settling for good in place of something great? Listen, certainly we are we are to learn contented, uh, contentment in any circumstance we find ourselves, but not when it comes to possessing the full promises of God in our lives. But like has God planted in your heart a vision for where he's taking you? Perhaps it's your business, maybe education, maybe family, ministry, right? Whatever it is, great. Whatever it is, great. Hang on to it. But keep in mind that there is often a lengthy trying process between the promises of God and the payoff to that promise. So in, in the in-between Man, you want to stay hungry, you want to be prayerful and watchful, you want to leverage every opportunity that's presented to you in that period and pick up the skills that you need for where you're going, be attentive and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, but most importantly, don't settle for good if the possibility of God's great is still on the table. And that's where we see Esther. You see, Esther, realizing that there was still more to be had in her promises and prayers to God, Esther moved from settling for good to seeking great, right? By proposing to the king, even though he may have cost her life, that right, uh, 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 revoke this irrevocable law. Well, Esther is actually facing a nearly impossible task in this request. You see, Esther chapter 1, verse 19, and the king himself here in Esther chapter 8, verse 8, reiterate a Persian policy. And he basically says, 
no document written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can be revoked. In other words, Xerxes is going, I'm sorry, honey, there's nothing I can do about your situation. Now, some of you listening to me right now, you, you know all too well the painful feeling of having a door slammed shut on your great expectations. You know, like, like I've had my fair share of slammed doors. I mean, one time, literally, like it was the fourth grade and this girl was more interested in dating Michael and I said some things and she said some things, you know, it's, it's a long story. I don't want to talk about it, but, but I, I've had that experience, right? And so for Esther, this is that moment where she could just throw her up her hands and go, well, you know what? I gave it my best shot. I guess we're just going to walk away. But something interesting happens, and, and that brings me to the second lesson about that moment when God places the ball in your court. And it's this, lesson two. When the door on your plans slams shut, don't walk away. Instead, get creative. You know, I get the sense from verse seven and eight that when the king is responding to Esther, he's a little exasperated with her. Like the verse sounds like he is throwing up his hands in frustration and going, what do you want me to do, Esther? Like, I already gave you Haman's estate because he attacked your people. I even had him impaled, killed, publicly. Like, what else do you want, right? But but Esther, man, I love this girl. She, she doesn't give up. Notice what she does in verse 5, how she bundles two very strong emotions together. She basically goes to the king and she says, listen, if it pleases the king and he regards me with favor and he thinks this is right and if he has any affection for me at all, let an order be written. I love this. This is brilliant because you know what she's doing here, right? Um, she is tugging at his emotions and she is equating his love for her with his ability to lead well. So she's going... Honey, if you truly love me, and if you want to be known as a great king, and if I mean anything to you, and if you think you're, and if you think in your heart that this is right, pre, please write this into law. Right? It's just brilliant. I mean, she's playing. She's playing the wife card. Now, whether Esther was really just overwhelmed with emotions when she breaks down and cries, or whether she is just brilliantly shrewd, we don't know, and frankly, it doesn't matter. What matters is what her actions stir the king to say next in verse 8, where he basically goes, fine, I give you and Mordecai the power of attorney. You go do something about it. Right? I mean, that's basically what he does in verse 8. He basically turns it over to them. He's like, all right, fine, you do something about it. So let's talk about this for a second, because sure, yeah, yeah, this is a win for them, right? But let's be clear on this. The problem has not been solved. Like Esther and Mordecai have been entrusted with the power to fix the problem, but they still can't change Persian law. Like the, de the death edict still remains. Xerxes simply took the pressure off himself and placed a burden on them. And so this actually calls for some outside-of-the-box creative thinking. So I'm going to imagine that the conversation that takes place between Mordecai and Esther in the hallway went something like this. So Mordecai went, hmm, if the law says that a pseudo-army cannot be stopped from carrying out their killing orders, how, how do we interact, how do we counteract that law? So Esther, excitedly and suddenly filled with inspiration, probably went, oh, oh, wait a minute, I, got I have an idea. What if we write another law that allows the victims to assemble their own army and defend themselves? And Mordecai is going, holy cow, that's brilliant, Esther. I'm going to assemble the royal secretaries, immediately start drafting out these orders in the name of the king. I got to send it out to all 127 provinces in the empire from India to Ethiopia. We got to get this going right now, including let's, let's get the word out. And that scenario I just painted actually sums up verse 9 
to 14, right? That's basically what just happened in those verses. However, it all required some outside-of-the-box creative thinking when it seemed that the door was slammed shut, right? So, so King says, I can't revoke the law. There's nothing I can do. Haman and Xerxes says, well, that door is not necessarily shut if we think about this other idea. Very, very creative. You know, I've been a Christian long enough to know that some of us often assume that God's personal promises in our lives will be delivered to us on a silver platter with a golden spoon wrapped in purple satin lace, right? Like we think it's just going to happen easily. Listen, the truth is that God's promises, those personal promises to us, are sometimes acquired through a faith-filled fight. You got to fight, right? Let's just call it, sometimes you have to fight. Like David, who we look up to, we don't talk about this, but listen, before David became king, um, he had to fight Goliath and evade Saul to become the king that God destined him to be. Paul the Apostle. Man, this guy had to face down the religious establishments and, and the Roman authorities in his church planning efforts that God called him to. Even Jesus himself had to go to the cross before he ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father. The reality of the matter is this, that doors will sometimes seemingly slam shut on the very things that God has promised to do in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that God's promise has failed. It may just mean that you and I need to get creative and consider some other options of achieving those intended goals. Furthermore, the struggle and discipline of creatively seeking other options for your for the solution to your problems is sometimes a key part of the process that God uses to prepare us to become better stewards of the promise he will be entrusting to us. All of that to say, hey, when the door slams shut, don't walk away, get creative, get moving, get in the fight. And this is what we find Esther and Mordecai prepping the Jews to do in the provinces of um, Persia. This new edict, edict has been written, the king has approved it, and it's been sent out through the empire by couriers riding on royal horses, which is basically the UPS equivalent of our day. But before Mordecai leaves the palace, we find God putting a little bit more balls in his court, which brings us to the third and final lesson, and it's this. When God grants you or blesses you with an elevated platform, it is so that you can be a voice for those unspoken for. Read how this happens in the last two verses of Esther chapter 8, verse 15 to 17. It says, After all these things had been signed, all that was that says, Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe of violet and white, a huge gold crown, and a purple cape of fine linen. And the city of Susa exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated, they were honored. It was that way, all over the country, in every province, every city, when the king's bulletin was posted, the Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. And not only that, but many non-Jews also became Jews, because now it was dangerous not to be a Jew. That's actually the message version of the Bible I just read. Now, just so you have an understanding of what all of that meant, the last chapter of the book of Esther explains that all that royal pageantry really amounted to the fact that Mordecai was just promoted to position of second in command to King Xerxes, right? I mean, this is a promotion of a lifetime, especially when you consider how far Esther and Mordecai have come since Esther chapter 2. Like, these two individuals, in the span of possibly seven years have gone by, they've gone from um, cashier and front desk manager at Walmart to first lady and chief of staff of the president. 
Now, don't, don't, don't miss what's happening here, right? Their divinely inspired promotion and advancements ultimately serve a greater purpose. And that purpose is to set the Jews in Persia free so they can live in peace and prosperity. Like, like God is a God of nations, and he will oftentimes raise up individuals or a small team to intercede on behalf of the greater masses, in this case, the Jews, right? So, so God is not just, God's always thinking big picture, and in this case, he's thinking about, um, he's blessing Esther and Mordecai as a means to ultimately bless the Jews. So God is blessing you so that you'll be able to bless others when you get to that place. Now, let's talk about the Jews for a second, because from Abraham till, frankly, the end of the age, uh, the Jews have and will always hold a special place in God's heart. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 8 talks about that. It talks about the fact that he holds them dear to his heart. So no matter how much Israel or the Jews stumble or stray, and no matter how many times God judges her, man, she remains his firstborn, and he will someday return to restore her to her full glory. Now, presently, Jews and, and Israel stand in opposition to her Messiah, to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. But God is not finished with the nation of Israel yet. The Bible teaches that in the end times, which is still in our future, that Israel will finally recognize and embrace Jesus as her Messiah, according to um, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The Jews are so near and dear to God's heart that he has actually built in a blessing for, for those who are in favorable relational proximity to her. So Genesis 12, 3, God says to, to Abraham, really to the nation of Israel, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and, the, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And I read all of that so that you understand that it was for the Israel's sake, the Jew was for their sake, the Jews and, and their benefit that Esther and Mordecai experienced all these blessings that we read of in the book of Esther, the ultimate beneficiary of their rise to prominence was the exiled people of Israel in Persia. So let's talk about you for a second as we wrap this up here. When, when good begins to morph into great in your life, and when slammed doors begin to swing wide open so that your standard of living improves and God's blessing you, listen, understand in that moment that God is blessing you so that you can become a blessing to others. God is blessing you and granting you a platform, a greater platform with a louder microphone so that ultimately you are in a position to speak for those people whose voices cannot be heard. God is a God of nations. He's always thinking about people. So in other words, it's not just about you. Sure, God loves you and you're special, but listen, God also loves your neighbors on your street. He loves your co-workers and he loves your he loves the men and women in your local government. He loves the president you don't like and his administration that you don't like. He loves the Christians in the mega church in your city and in the tiny church in the backyard of the city. God and the list goes on and on. And so a, a, a wise prayer then would be this. And in fact, we're going to wrap it up with this prayer. And it's this. Would you pray and pray that Lord grant me wisdom to discern between what I perceive as good for my life and what you truly consider to be great for my life. Give me discernment to know the difference between the two and to be patient enough to wait for great in my life. Lord, bless me with a Holy Spirit tenacity and creativity to press on even in circumstances where it seems the doors have been slammed shut. Give me insight to discern the areas I haven't thought through. 
And Lord, as opportunities begin to pour my way, oh, would you use me in a manner that I may become a wellspring of blessing to those around me and those you've called me to serve. And my friends, man, that's a kingdom prayer right there, right? That's a kingdom prayer. You pray that, and, and man, when God puts the ball in your court, and you'll begin to see God do some dramatic things in your life. And so, that's the end of today's blog post. I mean, I pray that God would bless you and guide you as you journey with Him and as you trust Him, and as you journey along with me in this blog series in the remaining two last episodes of this amazing book of Esther. God bless you. May His peace be over you this week. Um, and so, hey, I just invite you, please go ahead and share this blog post with some of your friends here, this audio podcast with them, or subscribe to my podcast. Um, I'd love to share this story with you. God bless you. Have a good week.